Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in from the cold and settle in. We have two tales for you this evening. But first, I'm sure many of you have already seen it, but for those who haven't, I wanted to mention the trailer for an upcoming movie called Brightburn. The movie's strapline sums it up as, What if a child from another world crash-landed on Earth, but instead of becoming a hero to mankind, he proved to be something far more sinister? As one of the most overpowered fictional characters of all time, There are few characters that, if taken down a darker path, hold as much potential to terrify as Superman. Reimagining a version of, more or less, his origin story, where his natural desire for goodness is instead replaced with malevolence. Well, let's just say it takes a turn that's decidedly in our direction. I'm curious to see if the film can hold up to its promising but ambitious premise. Link to the trailer is in the show notes. I'm curious what you think. But that's not the only sinister character making an appearance this season. I think we've all become pretty well acquainted by now with a certain notorious half-goat Christmas demon. Maybe it's a sign of the times. A railing against the saccharine sappiness of the season, and a general increase in cynicism. But Krampus seems poised to steal the show from the erstwhile crimson-suited, jolly frontman of the holidays. Krampusnacht, which happened last week, has spread in popularity over the years to include events across Europe, the UK, and North America. And each year, it seems there's another handful of Krampus-inspired movies. Okay, before you go rolling your eyes, I agree Krampus has had plenty of love in the mainstream media lately. I don't need to rehash his life story here. But he's not the only creature lurking in the shadows, salivating for the chance to punish children for their bad behavior. Europe, in particular, 
as an impressive tradition of scaring kids into submission at this time of year. While many of these frightful characters play a dual role, dishing out presents or punishment depending on a kid's behavior, some seem to be happier leaving the merriment-making to Old St. Nick, pursuing their own darker agendas instead. Now, if there's one of these that you're probably most likely to be familiar with, it's Bell Snickle, if only from that episode of the American version of The Office. In folklore, he's typically depicted as a man wearing ragged, dirty furs, his face obscured by a hideous mask with a long tongue. In one hand, he carries a branch, a wooden switch, to beat naughty children. But his pockets are also lined with cakes, candies, and nuts for those who are deserving. A week or two before Christmas, he creeps up to the window and raps on it with his stick. The children inside have to answer a question or sing him a song. If they do, he tosses treats onto the floor for them. If not, or if they're too quick to go after those treats, he whips them with that wooden switch. But if a dirty old man in tattered furs sneaking into your child's room at night and beating them with a branch isn't terrifying enough, Bellsnickle is downright saintly compared to some of the other creatures that stalk the season. In the mountains of Iceland, for example, lives a mythical giantess named Grilla. For most of the year, she bides her time, sitting in her cave in the Demorborgir lava fields, using her supernatural senses to search out and catalogue the misbehaviors of children. After months of watching and waiting, as Christmas approaches, she lumbers out of her cave to hunt for fresh meat, the tender, tasty morsels of naughty children. The lucky ones simply become a snack for her infernal grocery run, but the less fortunate are taken back to her cave to become the feature ingredient in her favorite dish, a rich, hearty, troublesome child stew. After all, everyone knows there's no better seasoning than misbehavior. Some of these festively frightful creatures, though, don't reserve their punishment just for the children. Relatively unknown, in North America at least, Frau Perchte, also known as Berchte or the Spinning Room Lady, I think deserves a lot more attention than she receives. From a distance, you'd be forgiven for mistaking Frau Perchte as a poor old woman down on her luck, hobbling along in tattered rags, leaning heavily on a cane. But as you get closer, you'd start to notice something isn't right. Her nose, long and beaked, seems to be made of iron, and she appears to be clutching something beneath those dirty, torn rags. A long, sharp, glistening blade, and you instantly know that she'd take special delight in using it if you wind up on her naughty list. So what do you have to do to deserve a deadly visit from Frau Perchte? Lying and dishonesty seem like obvious ones, but neglecting your spinning duties might be less obvious. Listen, there's flax and wool to be spun, and you'd better make your quota before the year's up. What if you, say, ate something other than fish and gruel on her feast day? Yeah, that'll do it. 
And don't let your house get too dirty, either, because she's got a special distaste for dust and clutter. But if you're good, your house is in order, your spinning is taken care of, well, you might wake up to find a shiny silver coin in your shoe or bucket. If you're not, well, how does waking up to your belly being slit open, your guts being ripped out, and having them replaced with straw and pebbles sound? Merry Christmas! So, if you find the hustle and bustle of the holiday season is catching up with you, the chores are piling up, your house is looking a little messy and cluttered, you might want to take a few minutes to tidy up. Because guts are a nice thing to keep on the inside. On that festive note, let's hear some stories. Edgar Allan Poe was an American writer, editor, and literary critic born in Boston in 1809. Poe is best known for his poetry and short stories, particularly his tales of mystery and the macabre. He is widely regarded as a central figure of Romanticism in the United States and American literature as a whole, and he was one of the country's earliest practitioners of the short story. Poe is generally considered the inventor of the detective fiction genre, and is further credited with contributing to the emerging genre of science fiction. He was the first well-known American writer to try to earn a living through writing alone, resulting in a financially difficult life and career. Poe was born the second child of two actors. His father abandoned the family in 1810, and his mother died the following year. Thus orphaned, he was taken in by John and Francis Allen of Richmond, Virginia. They never formally adopted him, but Poe was with them well into young adulthood. In Richmond in 1836, he married Virginia Clem, his 13-year-old cousin. In January 1845, Poe published his poem, The Raven, to instant success. His wife died of tuberculosis two years after its publication. Poe and his work have appeared throughout popular culture, in literature, music, films, and television. A number of his homes are dedicated to museums today, and the Mystery Writers of America present an annual award known as the Edgar Award for Distinguished Work in the Mystery Genre. On October 3, 1849, Poe was found delirious on the streets of Baltimore. In great distress and in need of immediate assistance, according to Joseph W. Walker, who found him. He was taken to the Washington Medical College, where he died four days later. Poe was never coherent long enough to explain how he came to be in his dire condition and, oddly, was wearing clothes that weren't his own. He is said to have repeatedly called out the name Reynolds on the night before his death, though it is unclear to whom he was referring. Newspapers at the time reported Poe's death as congestion of the brain or cerebral inflammation, common euphemisms for deaths from disreputable causes such as alcoholism. The actual cause of death, though, remains unknown, as all medical records, including his death certificate, have been lost. For a man who built his career on mystery, it seems only fitting that his life should end with one. Children of the Night, Edgar Allan Poe's The Telltale Heart.
true. Nervous, very, very dreadfully nervous I had been, and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses, not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in the heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain, but once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none, passion there was none. I loved the old man; he had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold, I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture, a pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold, and so by degrees. Very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation, I went to work! I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch on his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed, that no light shone out. And then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in! I moved it slowly, very, very slowly, so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern cautiously. Oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked. I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye, and this I did for seven long nights, every night just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed, and so it was impossible to do the work, for it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, 
I went boldly into the chamber and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone and inquiring how he had passed the night. So, you see, he would have been a very profound old man, indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon the eighth night, I was more than usually cautious in opening the door. A watch's minute hand moves more quickly than mine did. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me. "'for he moved on the bed suddenly, as if startled. "'Now, you may think that I drew back, but no. "'This room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, "'for the shutters were close-fashioned through fear of robbers, "'and so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, "'and I kept pushing it on steadily, steadily.' I had my head in, and it was about to open the lantern when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying out, Who's there? I kept quite still and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening. Just as I have done night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh, no! It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening, with its dreadful echo, the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions, but he had found all in vain. All in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him and enveloped the victim. 
and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot from out the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. It was open, wide, wide open, and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue with a heinous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the light as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that what you mistake for madness is but over-acuteness of the senses? Now I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well, too. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eve. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night... Amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder, louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now a new anxiety seized me. The sound would be heard by a neighbor. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leapt into the room. He shrieked once, once only. In an instant, I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes, the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased, 
the old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all, I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head and the arms and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the boards so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I made an end of these labors, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bells sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbor during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentlemen welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But ere long, I felt myself getting pale, and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat, and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued, and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued, and gained definiteness, until, at length, I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt I now grew very pale, but I talked more fluently, and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased, and what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. 
I gasped for breath, and yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles in a high key with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh, God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God! No, no, they heard. They suspected. They knew. They were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear those hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark, louder, 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 louder. Villains! I shrieked, dissemble no more, I admit the deed, tear up the planks, here, here, it is the beating of this hideous heart. That was Edgar Allan Poe's The Tell-Tale Heart, as read by me, Drew Sebastini. Link to my personal page will be in the show notes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
Next up for this evening is a tale from Sandra M. Odell. Sandra lives in Washington State with her family and an Albanian miniature moose disguised as a dog. Her work has appeared in such venues as Jim Bain's Universe, Daily Science Fiction, Galaxy's Edge, and three of the four Escape Artist podcasts. You can learn more about her work at writerodell.com or support her on Patreon at patreon.com slash writerodell. She can also be found on Twitter at writerodell. Links will be in the show notes. Join me for Sandra M. Odell's The Poison Eaters. Dobie eats half a pack of cigarettes without so much as flinching. Camels breaks them in half, eats them filters and all. Same with a Marlboro menthol Spence pulls out of a pack he unwraps himself. Three bites, chews, and washes it down with a swig of Mountain Dew. A swallow of dish soap. Then an air freshener stick. Then cigarettes. The rest of us stare. Dobie burps and wipes his mouth with the back of his hand. Pay up. We do, even Spence, though he doesn't look happy, which is messed up because this was his idea in the first place. Dobie stuffs the wad of ones into the front right pocket of his jeans. Spence frowns. So, that's it? Marty's Mart closed at one so we have the back lot to ourselves. Us and a couple of cats sniffing around the dumpsters. The night smells like garbage, scotch broom, and diesel exhaust from the semis passing by on the 422 overpass on their way to Akron. It's all the world does anymore is pass Youngtown by, and my folks wonder why I want out so bad. That the best you can do? Spence says. Dobie looks pissed but I can't really tell in the shadows. All we got is the moon and the street lights on the corner for light. Like what? Spence can be a real jerk sometimes, and the mosquitoes are getting to me. Stop being an ass. He did it, didn't he? Big deal. He ate soap and a couple of cigarettes. I got a kid cousin who can do that. Then he shits himself for a week, and it's all good. Eddie nods like he agrees. Dobie grits his teeth. Spence reaches into his backpack. You want a real pay-up? I got something for you. He pulls out a fat white plastic bottle with a blue cap and sets it in front of Dobie. I catch the edge of the label in the light. Bleach? You think you're the man and shit. Let's see you down some of this, he says. That's too much for me. Come on, man. That shit's poison. Dobie cuts a look from Spence to the bleach end back. Spence taps the lid and smiles like a shark. He's the one who said he can eat anything, made a big deal of it, so let's see him do it. 
He's playing Doby is all. Before I can tell Spence what he can do with his bottle and offer my grandma's hot water bottle for the job, Doby reaches into his jacket and pulls out a thin yellow and blue can. All right, you want it so bad? Let's make it interesting. He tosses the can into Eddie's lap. But you gotta make it worth my time. Eddie picks up the can like it's a snake. Cigarette lighter fluid? This time, Doby taps the cap. His smile is cold and crazy. Squirt it in, as much as you want. Ten bucks a swallow. Suddenly, the night's real quiet. No trucks, no mosquito buzz, no nothing. Spence isn't smiling so much now. I stand up. All right, that's it. You guys are crazy if you think, sit down, Spence says to me without looking away from Dobie. He's not going to do it, and you're a tard for thinking he will. I got better things. You pussying out, Connor? Sit your ass down. I want to kick Spence in the teeth. I want to pour the bleach down his throat and watch his stomach eat its way out his ass. Spence is a tard, but Jenna says she loves him. Mom wants me to hang with him so the baby has a father when it's born. Like anything I do will keep Spence around. Eddie looks like they wants out too, but Spence leads the pack. Maybe I'm the tard. I sit down. Dobie nods and smiles like a razor. Show me the money, he says. We dig in pockets and wallets and come up with a wad of bills Spence passes to me. Bastard. I count it out. Sixty-five bucks. Seven swallows, Spence says. Dobie nods. Shrugs. Whatever. Spence looks even whiter, if that's possible. He's got to know Dobie won't do it, but it's his turn to put up her pussy out. Dobie's playing him now. Eddie stares wide-eyed from Dobie to the lighter fluid until Spence punches him in the arm. Do it. Eddie squirms and says, Listen, I gotta get going. Spence twists off the cap like he's wringing Dobie's neck. The smell of bleach cuts through the dumpster stink. Do it, he snarls at Eddie. And Eddie does. His hands shake so bad. He squirts lighter fluid down the side of the bottle before he gets the red nozzle inside. The smell of the two together has me rethinking if I should leave. Dobie grabs the bottle, swirls it around. Seven swallows. Spence kind of nods. Dobie brings the bottle to his mouth. He's not going to do it. He can't do it. I'm reaching for the bottle. Eddie tells him to stop. Dobie tips the bleach back, and we're groaning and swearing and gagging as he chugs it down. The smell fills my head, coats the back of my throat. My stomach twists and burns. Somehow my cell phone is in my hand and I'm calling 911, but I can't look away. Four, five, six, 911, what is the nature of your emergency? Seven. Dobie lowers the bottle and smacks his lips, looking straight at me. Pay up. 911, what is the nature of your emergency? Caller, are you there? I wait for Dobie to scream or hurl or burst his stomach or something. He lifts his eyebrows and holds out a hand. Hello? Caller, are you there? I close my phone 
and pass the cash to Dobie. Spence stares, mouth wide open, and then gets all pissed because he got owned. You crazy or something? I'm 65 bucks richer than you. That's what I am, Dobie says. Spence grabs the backpack and stands. Well, you call or do whatever you want. I'm not sticking around for the ambulance when you explode. I didn't do nothing. He takes off without looking back. Eddie, too. Then it's me. And Dobie. As Dobie arranges his money into one roll, my cell goes off. I check the number. 911. I hit silent and stuff the phone in my pocket. We stand up. Dobie kicks the bottle of bleach over, and it suddenly smells like a laundromat on Saturday. The mix pools dark rainbows on the asphalt. Dobie zips up his hoodie. He lights a cigarette, a camel, with a match from a wrinkled matchbook. What are you waiting for? I have no idea. Spence put him up to it. I didn't do nothing but hold the money. It wasn't my fault, yet I can't just leave him. Maybe you should stick a finger down your throat or something? I got a pencil if you want. Dobie takes a drag, the ember making wicked shadows across his wide nose and cheeks. You really need to get to a doctor. It sounds lame, but I can't exactly knock him down and drag him to the emergency room when that might mess him up more. What's the number for poison control? How long do I have before he starts screaming? Maybe there was more water than bleach, and the lighter fluid was really vegetable oil. Dobie French inhales another drag. I'm fine. Lit end first. He eats the cigarette in two bites and walks away. I catch hell when I get home because 911 called my house when I wouldn't answer my phone, and Mom was late for work because she waited for me when I should have been home. She takes my phone and tells me Dad is going to set you straight when he gets home from his back shift. Later, Dad rolls his eyes and tells me not to worry Mom so much. I don't expect to see Dobie at school the next day, but he shows up for homeroom like nothing's wrong. He looks straight at me on his way to the back row in math like he's daring me to say something. Eddie lets on how Spence rags on Dobie in American history, but won't go near him. Not like Spence gave a shit first off, but I feel where he's coming from, he says around a mouthful of fries at lunch. That's bogus, man. I finish my cheeseburger and roll the tomato up in the lettuce for a salad burrito. I'm serious. What he did, that was messed up. I mean it. You scared of Dobie? Carlos downs his milk. What? Oh, hell no. You totally are, aren't you? Give me a break. I'm serious. You're just like Spence. Eddie stuffs his napkin in the milk carton. Doesn't look at me. What you think, he says, almost too soft to hear over the cafeteria noise. We talk about something else. Five minutes before the end of lunch, I walk by Dobie on my way to drop off my tray. He's alone at the table, earbuds leading to a hoodie pocket, tearing apart a slice of pepperoni pizza and eating it, a greasy piece at a time. He doesn't look pale or sick or anything. Hey, Dobe. Dobie stops eating just long enough to make me think he hears me, but doesn't look up. As far as I know, Dobie's an okay guy. He's odd man out, 
Even dweebs think he's not cool enough to make up for being smart. But I don't have a hard spot for him or nothing. Really never gave him much thought until he mouthed off to Spence. Sort of. I mean, he's not bad looking. You got, um, a partner yet for the environmental presentation? He pulls out an earbud and stares up at me with that same look from math. He's the kind of thin my dad calls no-chin pencil neck. My dad's a dork sometimes. No. Why? Just asking. I mean, I looked at the packet and started taking notes, but I don't have a partner yet. You interested? Doby finishes his pizza and wipes his hands on his jeans. Sure. I guess. Why'd I ask? The warning bell sounds. Benches and tables scrape across the floor as everybody hurries toward the garbage cans. Eddie cuts us a look from across the room, but doesn't stop. Yeah, um, okay. I hitch up my backpack, take a step towards the garbage cans. See you in class and we can set something up? Dobie shrugs. Whatever. I don't stick around. Two days later, I'm out the door with the escape bell and on my way to the bus when I see shit going down by the planters out front. Eddie and a couple others have Dobie cornered, knuckling him in the arm, getting up in his face. Some nearby keep an eye out for school security. The rest pretend not to watch. Dobie is pissed. Gut you and leave you to bleed pissed. His face all flushed and shoulders hunched tight. He wants to hurt them bad. I feel it in my stomach, the way he wants to grind their faces into the cement. Eddie and the rest keep pushing him to make the first move, but Dobie doesn't do shit back. Never does, which only makes it worse. I'm moving before I realize it. Next thing I know, Dobie is at my back and I'm leaning into Eddie, talking low. What's up, man? Come on, you don't want to do this, huh? Everyone's watching us. What the fuck, man? Eddie says in my ear, his breath hot and sour against my cheek. This got nothing to do with you. I know, I know, right? So leave off and we're cool. I don't want to do this for a whole bunch of reasons. I've known Eddie since the third grade. He's a bud. But treating Dobie like the meat of the week is all because of Spence's dare, and that's not cool. I don't play that. So why are you doing this? I heard he's talking shit about me. I step closer so he can feel me letting him know I'm not going anywhere. I keep my hands flat against my legs so I don't make fists. I keep it on the low. Dobie doesn't talk shit, man. You know it. He didn't do nothing to you, right? What's really going on? I see the memory of the weirdness in his eyes, his frown. He went and said, You hear him say anything, huh? That's when Eddie looks over my shoulder, and I don't have to turn around to bet money. He's not looking at Dobie, but at Spence. I tell him, I got it, you know, leave off, huh? I slide my left foot back. Eddie finally looks away, jerks his head to the side. Yeah, man, be right there, he says to the distance. I didn't hear anyone call him. I back up half a step. He does too. We bump fists, and it's over. Eddie and the others head to the buses and cars. I think I see Spence watching from beside his car at the end of the bus line but I can't be certain. I'm twitchy. My shoulders ache from coming down. I turn around. Listen, I... Dobie puts a chunk of blue and white in his mouth. 
He chews it like a thick wad of gum, drops his skateboard, and rolls off without a word, his eyes wide and hating. Had to be gum. Had to be. It couldn't be one of those dishwasher gel packs. I breathe through my mouth so I don't smell detergent. Dobie sucks as a partner. He doesn't do much except tell me when I'm wrong, like he knows all about mercury levels in fish. At the library, he sits with his feet on the table and listens to music, doesn't crack a book or log on to the net, and corrects everything I do. Thing is, he's right every time, which pisses me off even more. Jenna flips me shit. I don't think you can get any more retarded than asking Dobie Chuckman to be your partner. Like she has room to talk, she's going to end up working part-time at Taco Bell and taking night classes at the community college for her GED while the rest of her friends walk come June. I tell her where to get off. Mom gets on my case. It's bad for the baby. It's all about the baby anymore. What about me? I may not be the smartest in my class, but the recruiters liked my test scores back in February and took down my name. Mom freaked, and Dad told me he could get me a job at the recycling plant. Screw that. No way I'm sticking around. Toby doesn't show up for science for two days. Eddie says he hasn't seen him all week. I'm sweating. The presentation draft is due tomorrow, and I was stupid enough to give him my thumb drive when he said he'd check the references. For five bucks, Anna gets me Dobie's address from the office during third period, and I catch the express transit after school. As soon as I step off the bus, it starts to rain. Great. By the time I get to his house, I'm soaked and set to finish everything myself. Fuck Dobie and his freak stomach, the rusted cars and sacks of garbage in his yard. Then the front door opens, and I swallow everything I was going to say. A small guy with a face like a hemorrhoid squints up at me through the screen door. What? I can see the resemblance. His dad? Yeah, uh, is Dobie home? Doberman! You got someone at the door! Dobie's named after a kind of dog? That's messed up. The man turns away. Come on in. He's in his room, end of the hall. Mind the cat. The cat is sad, with bald patches and bug eyes. It hides under the coffee table piled with newspapers and garbage and hisses at me on my way down the hall. The far door has posters of Tony Hawk and 50 Cent. I knock. Dobie opens it, a paler shadow in a house of shadows. I'm still angry, but this place looks like it has enough anger. I kind of wish I could make Dobie smile. Hey, man. Dobie looks me up and down. No smile. He steps to the side and motions for me to come in. Hey. The room smells like sweat, cat pee, and pot. A bed, a dresser, a couple of broken-down chairs. Piles of clothes and junk make it hard to walk. Can hardly see anything with the light off and the blinds closed. Where you been? 
Haven't seen you in school. He pushes magazines and clothes off of one of the chairs, then drops onto the bed. Not feeling good. I sit, put my backpack at my feet. That sucks. He shrugs. Does he have a stomach ache? I want to ask. Maybe as a joke. I'm not really sure. Doberman! I know I told you to take out the garbage, damn it! Doby gets that look again. The hurt you, hate you, make you bleed look he had at school. An ugly look. It busts through the wall beside me, grabs Doby's dad, and snaps his pretzel neck. Doby is up off the bed, gets his hoodie, stuffs a bottle in the pocket. Come on. He scoops up the garbage on our way out. I say goodbye to his dad because I don't want to be rude. His dad smokes and watches wrestling. Doesn't answer. He does yell something after Doby slams the door behind us. I don't catch what. Doby doesn't turn around. We walk. Doby looks straight ahead, working his jaw the same as my dad when he grits his teeth. I can't get any more soaked. I didn't come to hang out, but I don't want to up and split. Doberman. A dog gets kicked all the time. You want to do the right thing and help. You okay, man? Doby pulls out the bottle and has it open and two swigs gone before I smell pine and see enough of the label to realize it's not iced tea. Yeah. The question tumbles out of my mouth. Dude, what's wrong with you? I expect him to tell me to mind my own business. Instead, he snorts and takes another drink. Do I stop him? Knock him over and call 911 this time like I should have done at Marty's Mart? Are you trying to kill yourself? Another drink, half the bottle gone now. What's it to you? That catches me by surprise. I'm not his friend. Not really, I don't think. I don't know. I just think it'd be a waste is all. You're smart. You could be someone. I look around at the rundown shoebox houses with pastel siding. The 7-Eleven next to a boarded-up liquor store. A dead-end street in a dead-end town. Dad could have made it out, but he quit college and came back to Youngstown when his dad died. Mom wanted to be a nurse. Instead, she got married and works at fucking Walmart. I mean, Youngstown ain't worth dying for. We cross against the light, cars laying on the horns as they swerve around us. It's all I got, Doby says. All I'll ever have. I shake my head. Water drips into my eyes. Not me. I walk with my paper next year, and I'm gone. No looking back. Really? Yeah. We don't say anything for a couple of blocks. You ever get angry, Connor? He says. I nod. Yeah. 
He looks at me full on. Not from the side. Not with a snarl. I mean pissed. Hate someone mean. That's harder to answer. Those feelings are like a genie. I got this fear that if I admit to it, I'll never be able to stuff it back in the bottle. Kind of like other feelings. Once or twice, I guess. Half a block more. Where are we? No idea. I do, he says. I hate all of them. The fucks. The dorks. The douchebags. He finishes the bottle and throws it into the bushes. This is food, right? For when I want to kill them. All of them. I might still someday. Dude. Give it all back. That last part is as dark as his look. What does he want me to say? I think of the kick dog. How it can turn on you without warning. And don't say anything at all. Doby pulls out the cigarette lighter fluid. Squirts a stream into his mouth. I try not to watch, but it's like a wreck on the overpass and can't look away. He pulls my thumb drive out of a pocket. Here. I take it. Thanks. He brings out a plastic packet of green pellets. The label a cartoon dead mouse holding a lily. Whatever. I turn in the presentation rough and get to work on the finished project. Doby corrects me and eats bleach tablets. Jenna starts having contractions. Mom says they're Braxton Hicks or something. Spence gives me the eye if I'm around when he picks Jenna up for birthing classes at the hospital. He only talks to me once when Jenna's upstairs getting ready and Mom's in the kitchen. I'm on the couch with a Dr. Pepper and chips. He stands in the doorway watching me play Halo 2. Hey, Connor. I don't look up. Hey. You still a pussy for the freak? I give a brute Spence's face and press down hard on the fire button, blowing his ass away. Bite me. Pussy, he says. I hear Jenna coming down the stairs and suddenly he's all smiles. Mom tells them goodbye from the kitchen, and they're gone. Then she nags me to get off the game and clean the cat box. Dobie and I don't hang out so much as go for walks a couple of nights after the library closes. He drinks lighter fluid and listens to his music. Sometimes he acts like he might want me to do more, but I don't. Sometimes in bed at night... I wish I did. Him and me were not from the same neighborhood, but not that far from the same life. We don't talk much. This is how Spence finds us, on a walk. Maybe he didn't set out looking for us, I don't know, but we're cutting through the back lot at Marty's Mart, and I hear him over the traffic. Hey, freak! It's late. Not as dark as it was the last time we were here. I see his sneer as he walks over to us. The glitchy eyes. The bastard's tweaking. I wasn't home when he picked Jenna up. Was he tweaking with her in the car? What's up, freaking pussy? 
freaking pussy. He jangles his car keys in time with his steps like some sort of Clint Eastwood wannabe. Whatever. I nudge Dobie with my elbow. Come on. Dobie doesn't move. He puts the can of lighter fluid back in his hoodie pocket. What you got there, freak? Spence says. What is it this time, huh? Gasoline? Fuck you, Dobie says, his voice low and hard. Spence rattles his keys. Ooh, big man. Fuck. You. Lower. Harder. Ugly. Spence is close enough I smell the beer on him. Pictures of Jenna wrapped around a tree in a body bag. The baby in a little casket are lightning behind my eyes. The anger and what I want to do to him comes hot and fast and scares me enough to speak up. Get lost, Spence. To Dobie. Let's go, man. That goddamn sneer. You suck him off yet, Connor? His dick tastes like bleach. Dobie explodes. He knocks Spence to the dark rainbow asphalt, drives a knee into his chest, and grabs handfuls of Spencer's hair. I can't move. I can only watch as Dobie slams Spence's head against the pavement. Spence bucks, punches Dobie in the side of the face, the ribs, again and again, but Dobie doesn't care. He's all hate, and scariest of all, Spence is swearing, but Dobie doesn't make a sound. Dobie pulls his left sleeve up with his teeth and begins to gnaw on his wrist, on his own freaking wrist, like... Uh, oh God, like a dog. He puts a knee in Spence's face, digs around his pants pocket, brings out a Swiss army knife. He flips out a blade and saws at his wrist until it glistens, flows. He drops the knife and jams his wrist into Spence's mouth. Drink, motherfucker. I couldn't be half as frightened if he'd screamed it. Spence gags, jerks his head to the side. Dobie wrenches it back and clamps his hand over Spence's nose. I said drink, you cocksucker. Swallow it. I can't see Spence's mouth, only Dobie's hand and wrist with a black line oozing around it. Swallow. Dobie puts all his weight on Spence's face. There's a terrible sucking, puking sound that goes on forever. Then Dobie takes his wrist away. Spence coughs. And I swear he tries to scream, but all that comes out is foam. Black and blacker, it shoots out like he's puking up his soul. His eyes roll back, and in the bare light I see the veins of his face crawl like worms trying to escape acid rain. Dobie's hate and anger and ugly eat Spence alive. He spasms and shakes. His insides pool around his head, ooze foamy and stinking in my direction. He stops moving. What? The word hangs up in my throat. What did you... Dobie slides off, licks his wrist, looks at me sidelong. Looks at me like I want him to in my dreams. Looks at me like a dog, kicked one time too many, ready to turn. He holds out the lighter fluid. I could move again. Almost reach out for the blue and yellow can. 
take a step back. Dobie smirks and looks sad at the same time. He goes through Spence's pockets, takes his wallet and keys, grabs the knife. Then he's sucking on the blue and yellow can on his way to Spence's car. I hear the squeal of tires and see the flash of metallic blue less than a minute later. Got to get home. Spence is dark and foamy, spreading towards my feet. Home. Veins like worms. Mom and Dad. Home. Jenna is sorting through baby clothes and chatting on the computer when I stumble through the door. She looks up from something with strawberries and ruffles. I sag against the wall, try not to puke, shaking like I'm going to fall to pieces on the outside the way my life has on the inside. She frowns. You okay? Mom calls from upstairs. Everything okay down there? Jenna says, Yeah, just Connor. To me. God, what happened with you? You look like crap. I stagger towards the couch. Does she see what happened? What I let Dobie do? Mom calls down again. Any word from Spence? Jenna fiddles with her phone. Not yet. He said he'd text when he got home. Probably stopped to get cigarettes. I gag. Make a sound. Not a word. And Jenna looks my way again. What? I... I... Veins like worms. And the baby. Oh, God. The baby. It's over. My life is over. I am so hungry. Turn and run. No idea where. Try to outrun the taste of lighter fluid and bleach as Youngstown closes in. That was Sandra M. O'Dell's The Poison Eaters, as read by our very own Scott Silk. Scott Silk, editor of Tales to Terrify, is perpetually sorry for the delay, and hopes to get back to you very soon. Really. Scott is originally from rural western Pennsylvania, but now lives in Brooklyn with a girlfriend, two cats, and a growing collection of houseplants. As always, thank you, Scott. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Our podcast was produced by editors Scott Silk and Seth Williams, website design by Josh Lightsey, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.